with me. If you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, before you turn, raise your hand. We'll put a Bible in your hand. Uh, we are getting close to finishing Luke chapter 22. This Wednesday, hey, if you don't normally come on Wednesday services, I really encourage you, as it gets light out later this time of year, you can now be here on Wednesday night at 6.30. And when you get out of here about 7.30 or 7.40, it's about that range we get out about 7.30, 7.40, it'll still feel like that you've got a lot of daylight left. And actually, as the summer goes on, it'll be more. And we're going to be going to, starting this Wednesday, the book of Proverbs. We've never done the book of Proverbs here. Many of you read the book of Proverbs personally, uh, but we're going to go through it collectively and corporately Wednesday nights starting at 6.30, and uh, again, so we meet for about an hour. It'll be a real blessing. Uh, I don't know about you, but even though I've read Proverbs many times, I still could use more wisdom in my life. There'll be new decisions next month. There'll be new discernment needed tomorrow, and you'll need more wisdom, and we still, uh, I think we'll really be blessed by the things that God gave to Solomon as we go through that book. But uh, we're finishing up Luke's gospel. Uh, we've got uh, just a couple, of, a few chapters to go here. And so we're going to pick up where we left off before our Easter service in Luke chapter 22, uh, starting verse 24, uh, verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 34, Luke 22. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings, the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he serves. For he who is greater, uh, for, who is, uh, uh, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times, for you to deny three times that you know me. Father, we just ask again for your spirit now to speak in our midst to each and every person, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this takes place, um, if you were here with us for uh, Easter Sunday, I went through all the way, well, in the poem I read, I went all the way back to the garden, but in the general context, I set the table that uh, when we think about the last days of Jesus, kind of the last hours start in this upper room where they gather to do what? They gather to partake of the Passover meal. That's what they were partaking of. We would later then call it the Lord's Supper because the Lord gave new insights to the Passover, which had never been given before. No one had ever taken the matzah cracker, broke it in half, and said, this is my body. That was not 
something that was done at the Passover. No one had ever said, oh, by the way, the cup that has the wine in it, that's actually my blood. So Jesus took the Passover and revealed insights that only he himself could have given because the Father sent him for that reason to be the Passover lamb. But all that takes place in this upper room. They gather for that meal Jesus showing his love to his disciples there at that same meal. Uh, he makes clear that one of you is going to betray me. And who is that? Well, that will be Judas. Eventually, Judas kind of scoots out of the meeting, and he heads on uh, to get the temple guards, and eventually he brings them to the Garden of Gethsemane where they're going to meet Jesus. And all this is followed in the, uh, in the upcoming verses as we go through. You'll see the progression. But all this meal... Uh, During this meal, Jesus is revealing himself, revealing the uh, the fact that he's going to be shedding his blood for them. And uh, at the same time he's doing that, we have the disciples here, and they're starting to think among themselves uh, about their future. But they're not thinking about their future the way Jesus is thinking about his future. He's thinking of his future, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to then take captivity captive. All the things that have uh, kept man in bondage, I'm going to give release of those things through his resurrection. They are thinking about, again, all the times that he has said he will die, and you even see a little bit of this in in Peter's speech. Uh, A lot of times people partially get things, but they're not really getting it. You ever talk to someone you say, I don't think you're really getting what I'm saying. You ever said that to somebody? Well, Jesus could have easily looked at them and said, I'm pretty sure you guys are not getting what I'm saying. They don't know he's going to be dying very soon. Within hours, he's going to be beaten and scourged in the middle of the night by the religious leaders. They don't see this coming. But even if they did see it coming, we see Peter's response is, bring it on. Right? Even if he partially gets it, he thinks he's ready for it. Folks, we're not always ready for the things we think we're ready for, are we? But that clue is already given earlier because what are they debating? They're debating, you know, after the meal when everyone's done eating and the dishes are piled up and someone needs to go in there and clean them and all that good stuff, people like to sit around and start to shoot the breeze. And it's called family or fellowship or just chit-chatting. Their discussion breaks into... I wonder which one of us is going to be the greatest. I can see it now. My ministry, Church of Samaria. Well, actually, I wouldn't have said that because they weren't a big fan of Samaria. Remember that Jesus had to correct them on that. But maybe Church of Galilee or, you know, Church of Bethlehem. You know, that's in Judah. Somewhere where they could see their name in bigger print. And this is what was taking place. As Jesus is sitting there, observing their conversation, looking at what their hearts were uh, you know, focused upon, and he's going to correct them. He's going to rebuke where they're at. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Foolish Pursuits or Humble Service. Foolish Pursuits or Humble Service. And we want to take a look at um, four things this morning. If you're taking notes, I'll just, I'm not going to read them out now. We'll just, you'll be able to see them on the screen as we go. But the first thing we want to take a look at is their immediate conversation here. This dispute in verse 24, 
that rises. It says, now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, whenever you have a group of people talking about who's going to be the greatest, they're never going to agree. Why? Because they think they're going to be the greatest. Have you been watching the political campaigns? This might ring a bell, right? Um, the humility of it all, right? Now, Jesus has just revealed to himself, he's just revealed that he's the Passover lamb, that he's ready to lay down his life for mankind. Now, think about these terms. They understand how, how, how the Passover lamb works. The Passover lamb actually gives up its life to be the meal. It has to be killed in a kosher manner, throat slit, late, completely drained of blood, skin, and then it's, it's going to be burned with fire. He reveals that he's the Passover lamb. He's ready to lay down his life for mankind. He's ready to pour out his blood for all the sinners that ever ever been, ever will be. He's already left heaven. That's a huge thing alone. Can you imagine God leaving his throne to come walk dusty earth, the very dust of the earth that he created? He created man from the dust of the earth. He's already left the glory of heaven to live as a man and subject himself to the very created world that he created. But the disciples, they're sitting in his presence. They're sitting in the presence of infinite greatness, infinite power, perfection, sinless perfection, willing to lay down aside all of his rights as the God and creator of the universe, willing to lay all that aside to die on a wooden cross of trees he created. And the disciples' conversation, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Now, before we shake our heads at these guys, because that's easy to do, we need to remember they're human beings just like us. They're just human beings. They would go on to greatness. Don't don't be misunderstood. Jesus said they'll someday sit on 12 thrones. These guys will go on to greatness. But great men first have to understand how weak they are before they go on to greatness. But they're just human beings, just like us. And we might want to look inside ourselves a little bit. Would you agree? J. Vernon McGee said, right in the shadow of the cross, these men are grasping for position. And we see that in the church today. The saints today are not much of an improvement over the apostles. I would say that would be an understatement. We certainly have uh, just as much pontificating and self-promotion in the church today as there's ever been in the history of the church. But the bottom line is we have the same flesh as they did. We have the same, we would have fallen to the same thing. Just like Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we would have done the same. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has a way with words. Don't get offended at his last three words, okay? He says, God wants you to know him. Wants you to give, wants to give, uh, God wants you to know him, wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order that, to make this moment possible trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress, 
which we've all got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots we are. (laughs) I told you not to be offended by his last few words. C.S. Lewis said it. I didn't. But I can agree with him in this sense. C.S. Lewis, he had a genius IQ. You guys know he's incredibly smart, gifted intellect. He had a genius IQ, and he says idiot. He's speaking of himself, too. He says that we strut about trying to preserve dignity that God says we don't have. He knew that in us, C.S. Lewis had come to see it in himself, is prideful ambition. We all have it. You say, well, not, not this type of person or not this profession. No, you find any profession... And I'm including stay-at-home moms. Any, anyone, anyone will find a way to compete with everybody else. Understand that even people that have been walking with Jesus, these guys have been walking close with Jesus for three years. People that have been walking with Jesus, following him closely, listening and learning to his teaching, learning from his love and his character, absorbing all that Jesus would say. And yet, they can quickly fall to the same desires, the same ambitions, and the rivalry that exists in the unsaved world. This is common in the unsaved world, isn't it? Backstabbing, step on someone to get to the top, who's really the greatest? You know, shameless plugs for oneself that are put in such a way that I wasn't complimenting myself. By the way, we're never fooling anybody with that stuff anyway, right? Right? So you might as well just come out and say it. Or not say it at all and just follow the Lord. Understand that um, Christian ambition is also often disguised as godly or humble. You ever see this? Christian ambition is often cloaked as something really spiritual. Listen to these words from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, The ego wants wants people to tell themselves, you're a cut above the rest. We can't do enough to protect ourselves from this shameful wickedness. Other human vices are so crude that we easily perceive them, but this one sneaks up on us. It disguises itself as honoring God and doing what his word tells us to do. However, selfish ambition lies hiding like a secret rebel behind it all. Isn't that true? Martin Luther said, even in himself, he said, the ego is always there, and it tries to make it look self really spiritual. Humility can quickly fade, can't it? We've all seen or met people. We've seen it in ourselves, too. We've all seen or met people that used to be humble servants. You ever meet someone that you used to, used to really love, to a, a pastor or, or some leader that you say, they used to be so humble, and then when they became fill-in-the-blank... You ever seen this? We see it with politicians. I remember when they were the county commissioner and they were so approachable. And then they became, or you see, I remember when they were just so-and-so in middle management and then they rose to senior vice president and now they really think a lot of themselves. You ever seen this? People we used to remember that were humble and are no longer humble. God wants men and women that no matter how much he rose you, you would still be the same person. That's what he wants in our life. He could bestow anything upon you, and you'd be the same person with a million dollars or ten dollars, with a title or no title. Isn't it refreshing when you meet people that have big titles that don't act like they have big titles? I've met people like that, and it's such a refreshing thing. When you meet people that wouldn't even, there's no air about them. 
Humility can fade quickly. People that used to be humble, they start thinking about their status, their reputation, their own accomplishments. And none of us are immune to this. We can easily find ourselves seeking to be appreciated or seeking to promote ourselves, highlighting our abilities and our strengths all the time. Whenever you put a group of people together, you put any group of people together, five people, ten people, put a group of people together, there is always, even if it's not spoken, this is, this is the sin nature in human beings, there is the propensity to start measuring ourselves one to another. There will all, it'll always be there. You have to die to it. It'll be there automatically. This is how men roll. I wonder how much he makes. I wonder how much he makes annually, and I wonder what his job title is. I wonder if mine's cooler, better. I wonder if I can lift more on the bench press than him. <laughs> I wonder if I'm still faster. I was when I was in high school. You know, all these things that go into people's mind. I'll spare the ladies. I have, I have a wife and three girls, so I know how they think, too. <laughs> you put a group of people together, and there's the thoughts of who's the most gifted, who's the most valuable, who's the most talented, who's essential to success. And while it's true, understand that it is true that certain persons may be the most critical to an organization. That's true. I'll give you a case in point. If somebody is bleeding and dying and there's only one doctor in the room, they are the most critical at that moment. True? So there are times that someone in the room is more critical to an immediate success than other people. However, it doesn't make them more valuable. You see the difference? They might be more critical at that moment, but it doesn't make them more valuable. Not one of you in this room are more or less valuable to God than anyone else. But you may be more critical to something God wants to do in a certain area. Dads are more critical. Studies have shown this. Dads are more critical to kids not ending up in prison. Many studies have shown this. Does it make them more valuable than a mom? They have equal value but different areas of criticality. Uh, A mother in a poor agrarian society is going to be more important to an infant's survival when they don't have bottles and things like that doesn't make her more valuable than a dad. So there's situations of, uh, where, again, value or, or critical success, God has a certain position or person or role for a person, but it doesn't make them more valuable. None of the disciples were more valuable than the others, although they're debating who is the most valuable. Our perspectives can be so narrow, can't they? And pride makes them more narrow. Pride makes your perspective really narrow. You don't see people and the world the way Jesus did. Pay attention to how narrow our focus is. All of us need to find ourselves. Are we, are we really, do we see things 360 the way God does? We see people from a 360 view the way God does. Their value. Why he would die for them as much as he would die for us. We need to have God help us. See and appreciate the gifts and talents in other people. We always want them to see them in us. Why don't we want to see them in them? What other people bring to the table and encourage them, not stifle them. Or try and you know, make them feel like, hey, uh, you don't quite measure up. You, you couldn't do this as well. As human beings, we have this natural tendency to compare ourselves. 
But worse, we tend to not just compare ourselves, we tend to downplay the value of other people and the contributions that they could or do make, and we self-inflate our own. This happens a lot of ways. You'll see it in conversations. You'll see it in a text. You'll see it in emails. Oh, and they can be really well-crafted to make it seem like they're not putting you down or they're not lifting themselves up, but yet that's exactly what's happening. You'll see it on Facebook, right? By the way, I'm not against Facebook. I, I use Facebook with a church. We have a face, church Facebook site. If you want to friend me on Facebook, feel free. I actually think things like that can be used for good. Paul used a lot of things for good. Uh, you know, books, there's a lot. You go to Barnes & Noble, there's a lot of books there that are horrendous. They're not used for good, and there's good books there too. Facebook, social media, it's like anything else. It can be used for good, or it can be used for evil. It can be used to encourage people, or it can be used to be, hey, look at everything that I do in life and how it's cooler than yours, right? And, and I like when people post pictures of family, and I like when people, you know, make, I, I get a laugh out of things that people post, but you also have people that I truly believe, I look at them and say, they need a hug. They really need somebody to tell them you don't need to do this anymore. God will love you without self-promotion, right? It really is that, that aspect, but it, but it finds its way all through our lives. It finds its way in ministries. It finds its way at the workplace. It finds its way in conversations and all these different things. Uh, you can find it in worship. You can find it in books, authors, all kinds of theories. You certainly can find it in pulpits too. None of us would be immune. That's why we have to, I hope that this church, you allow the Holy Spirit to self-assess you constantly. I need the mirror of God's word. And, and God will make adjustments on me constantly. Hey, no, 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 don't, don't write that email. Or don't say, rework that because that will encourage them. Or this will lift them up. Or this will actually draw them closer to me. We need God to self-assess us and help us say the things that he wants us to say. Because if the disciples had been self-assessing the situation, they wouldn't have been arguing about who was the greatest at that moment. Do you, do you agree? Jesus is about to die. They don't seem to get that. But all these things are sin. This focus of ourselves. Christian, we can never forget how flawed and self-focused our sin nature is. That's what, that's what Martin Luther was trying to say. He says it's insidious. John MacArthur has said for years, he said, Whenever other, when every other sin is gone from your life, pride will still be there. Did you know that? I agree with that. He said that I was only saved for like a year. I heard that. I've never forgotten. When every other sin is gone from your life, pride will still be there. That's true for every single person. It's a very foolish thing to be self-focused and self-absorbed and to foolishly self-promote. You know what it does in the body of Christ? It quenches the Holy Spirit. None of us want to quench the Holy Spirit, but that's what it does. It quenches the Holy Spirit. All the glory should be given to God. All the love and appreciation we want to give to others. All the glory to God and give love and appreciation to other people. One more practical point uh, before we move on from this. I I try and remind myself, I, I think the Lord reminds me all the time, and I remind our CCR leadership here and our ministry leaders, if you're a leadership role, even if you're not in a leadership role at this church, you're a leadership role at work, 
use the language of we instead of I as much as you possibly can. Learn to talk in terms of we. I is the worst thing. You know, we have to use the word I sometimes. You could never send a text to someone if you could never use the word I. You could never send an email. I'm not practically saying you, you can't ever use the word I. We do have to use it. But as much as possible, intentionally use the word we and limit I as often as you can. And as, as well, look to give other people credit as often as you can and let God take care of yours a great thing to learn. The disciples would learn that later. They would become those men. They weren't those men at that time. And don't always be the one to give the credit. Let other people give the credit too. Because you're actually raising up other leaders when you do that. Remember, we're all just equal parts of God's plan. We're just equal parts. The engine needs all the pieces in there to work. And God uses each and every one of us. No competing, no striving, no one-upping. That's what Jesus is making the point. Let's move to the next um, verse, 25 to 27, proper motives. Well, we don't want to have wrong ambitions, but we do want to have proper motives. And Jesus outlines what their motives should be. He says in verse 25, he said, The kings of the Gentiles exercised lordship. They knew this because they were under Roman rule. They knew how Rome... Uh, ruled. They knew how the Roman aristocracy worked. They knew how the Roman leaders worked. He said they call uh, they exercise authority over them. They call and they're called benefactors. Now that word benefactors, uh, what it meant was it, it was um, someone who had kind of nobility, like the title of a prince. Uh, they would have been given titles of of some sort of um, authority and nobility. He said, but it shall not be so among you. On the contrary, so Jesus saying. The motives that should drive the way you operate will be contrary, they'll be opposite or against the grain of the world. Contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he who governs as he serves. For the greater is he who sits at the table. Uh, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? He's asked the question, what do you guys think? Who's greater, the one who sits or the one who serves? Well, in royalty, the one who sits would be greater, right? At a king's table, the king is not going to get up off the throne and start serving the servants. But Jesus said, the one sitting among you here has actually been serving. So he's saying that contrary to the world's model, I want you to be servant leaders, not leaders with servants, Jesus makes it clear that the motivation of his servants is drastically different than that of the world. He indicates here that in the world system, uh, the, higher, uh, the higher the leadership, the higher up you go in leadership in, in the Roman Empire, the more you'd see self-interest, uh, you know, kind of authoritarian rule, management of people, and governing you're beneath us. Rome had these different strata levels of society. If you weren't in the upper crust, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good life. We've come to know um, in, our own, in our own country, we've come to know that the term public servant uh, doesn't always resemble anything that looks like servanthood. Would you agree with that? Public servant. Boy, I, when I hear that word sometimes, I'm like, can, can we get a, all get a definition of that, please? Can, we, can someone define this? 
Can we have a national town hall where we define what public servant actually means? Jesus was the greatest model of that, wasn't he? He was the servant to humanity. And today, we see often, as was seen in Rome, position and power is used to enrich oneself, to gain wealth, to gain influence, to manipulate people rather than serve people. And that's what was going on in Rome. They would use, you know, the, if you were moving up the chain in the Roman strata, you'd do anything legally or illegally to get as high as you possibly could. It's the way the Roman rule was. It's the way the Roman society was. And Jesus said, I don't want you lording over people like that. I don't want you stepping on top of people to get ahead. I don't want you debating who's the greatest in the Roman Senate. Jesus, though, he gives two motives here, two motives and two truths to hold on to. You might want to write these down. Why these are important. Whenever Jesus says something, even if you don't understand it, just embrace it. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And when you hear the Word of God, apply the Word of God, good things will happen in your heart and in my heart. First one, he says, of these two things, two motivations and two truths, uh, they're one and the same. They're both a motivation and a truth. The first one, he says, go lower, it's the greatest position. The first one is go lower, it's the greater position. He says, let him... Um, he who is the greatest among you, let him be the younger. He who governs as he who serves. So go lower. It's the greater way to go. Philippians 2, 3, Paul says these same things in a different way. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem others better than himself. You know, when you feel it rise up in you that you're going to, it's time for you to put somebody in their place. Remember, Philippians 2, 3, esteem others better than yourself. That doesn't mean that people never be, need to be corrected in life. It's just when you are going to correct, you want to correct in the power and the flow of the Holy Spirit, not in a mind of pride and selfish ambition. That's where things really go south. If you come in genuine love, God will give real words of wisdom when needed if there's situations that need to be dealt with. But for the most part, uh, a lot of situations don't need to be dealt with. They're just pride. Considering others better than ourselves. He says that Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, it is, an, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. Why would you not rather accept wrong? Paul's like, why are you not okay with being wrong? You're servants. Servants get wronged. Paul's like, it's just, it's just part of the territory of who you've become in Christ. You take the lower position. Well, I don't like taking the lower position. That's my seat, right? Whereas Jesus gave up his seat. So first, go lower, it's the greater position. Number two, he says, go lower, for it follows the example of Christ. Jesus uses himself as the example. He said, I am one, I am among you, and the one who serves. He's like, I have a position of authority. I created everything, and yet I could sit here and be served, and instead I've been serving you guys. So go lower, for it's the greater position. Go lower, because it follows the example of Christ. Now, you don't even have to fully digest those things to know that if you follow them, God will honor them. You believe that? If you just follow them, God will honor them. 
You could, you could pr- try it out this week, Monday through Friday, say, I'm going to remind myself all this week to go lower because it's the greater position and to go lower because Jesus went lower and watch and see God bless you in your life. He really will. He's serving them and he actually is the greatest. Remember, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Pretty comical, right? They're sitting in the midst of the one who's the greatest, arguing about who's the greatest. Now, they weren't arguing that they were better than Jesus, but still, he really is worthy of their service, and yet he's serving them. Proper motives. Let's take a look at our last two. And he moves on, and he not only talks about the motives here, he says in verse 29, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, he does notice, he notices their loyalty and their sacrifice. Take a look at uh, when he says here, he says, you are those who have continued with me in my trials. Jesus, on the one hand, is not real pleased with their argument about who's the greatest. But like any good leader... And any, if those are your parents. Your kids could be having a really silly, foolish argument. Has this ever happened in your house? Your kids are having a really silly, foolish... Now, even though that moment is laced with really things that are making you roll your eyes, you also appreciate the good things that are going on in their life at the same time. So Jesus, on the one hand, he sees their argument and how really juvenile immature, and destructive it would be if they continued on that path. But at the same time, he says, but I do know that Peter did drop his nets and follow me. Can we forget that? How many of you have dropped your business, sold it, lock, stock, and barrel, and said, I'm on the mission field? Peter did. Matter of fact, he raised that point to Jesus one time. He's like, we've left everything to follow you. So I have a hard time when I see people overly bang on Peter when I see that, hey, this guy's done a lot more than almost anyone I've ever met in the church. And Jesus said, you guys have been with me in my trial. So he understood that on the one hand, they had weaknesses they needed to be worked, that they needed to work through. But at the same time, they really had been with him for three years, walking with him. He sent them out two by two. They went and healed people. They had done ministry, and they had done it the best they possibly could at that time. And he said that what they had been doing and what they will be doing, he said he would not forget it at the day of judgment, all that they had done for him. He would not forget it. By the way, if you wonder, what is, what is he talking about, uh, or what, what am I talking about in the judgment? Well, there's two judgments at the, end of the, at the end of the age. One of them you want to be at, the other one you don't want to be at. The judgment seat of Christ, it's mentioned in Romans 10, 14. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Paul said all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if most of your Christian service was done in pride and selfish ambition, it'll go up in smoke. Poof. But if it was done in genuine humility and obedience to Christ, it'll survive like gold. And then there'll be rewards given. The other judgment is the one you don't want to be at. That's called the great white throne judgment, And that is where all those that are unsaved, that never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. But they'll also be judged for their works too. And it'll all be judged. Every curse word, 
every dishonest thing, every lie, every, you know, everything done in pride, the rejection of Christ, all that would be done and it would be judged at the great white throne judgment. And there will be rewards. There will be some of the Christians will get greater rewards than others because they will have served more faithfully. And in hell, there'll be levels of punishment. Some people will be punished with greater punishment because they had even been more wicked than others. The Bible makes this clear. I'm just making sure you understand that when he says you'll uh, receive rewards, their rewards will not all be the same. They'll be commensurate with the service and the heart level of that service. And so that's good for us to know because just like it's your job, it's good to know how the end of your year review process is going to go, right? It's good to understand how the metrics, and Jesus says, I want you to understand that I will remember those things you've done right, those things you've done well. Now, the reason that people want and desire recognition, though, the reason they want to be served, and the reason they want to acquire is that sin nature in all of us wants satisfaction and rewards today. We want the reward now, right? Remember the prodigal son? He wanted his inheritance immediately, didn't he? I didn't want to wait for the inheritance. But for the Christian, the order of reward goes like this. Confession first, cross second, and finally the crown. Confession is what? When we came to Christ. The cross is the discipleship and sanctification of the rest of your life walking in Christ. And the crown comes after this life. Confession first, cross second, crown third. A lot of people want crown first, no confession, and no cross. It doesn't work that way. You can try that way, but you'll have a false religion. You can try that way, but you'll have self-worship. But you won't have genuine, born-again faith in Christ. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. There will be a time for exaltation, but that's later. As Christians, we lose sight of the rewards we should be seeking. Understand that in serving Christ today, we'll often receive tangible rewards right now. Even now, I mean, you'll receive blessing where God will... Uh, show favor on your life today. And, and that is a blessing when we get that, isn't it? Like when you get the promotion you weren't expected. Like when we got, the, this time last year, we were in the other property. We were planning for this time this year to be looking at other properties. And God says, I'm going to move it up nine months. You, are you all okay with that? I was great with that. We weren't expecting that. It was just a blessing. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve anything on this property. We don't deserve a blade of the grass. In God's goodness, he said, I'm going to give it to you now. Because we'd been faithful with little, he said, I'll give you a little more. If we're faithful with this, he'll do more. Not because of stuff, but for souls. Lives would be changed. So he may bless in some tangible way today. If you have children, God's blessed you now. That's tangible today. Not in the future, that's tangible now. But as servants of Christ... We're not to be focused on instant reward and instant satisfaction. If we're maturing, we're not focused on immediate things from God. We're looking further out. And when we look further out say, God, you'll reward this in your own way, in your own timing, we avoid falling into sin traps. 
Plus, we'll have the peace of a clean conscience, knowing that we're actually doing what we've been called to do, and that's to be a servant. That's what he's called us to do. But know that there are future rewards. They really are. And that's an added incentive from Christ. He didn't have to insert this, but he did. He wanted us to know that, hey, I want you to work in such a way that you receive the reward. Paul said he was striving for a crown. Now, he loved Jesus more than the crown, but he also wanted to work in such a way that he'd have a crown to give back to the Lord. That would be a reward. We'll have joy in serving. We'll have joy in serving even if we don't receive any tangible thing now, but we'll have the joy of knowing God will not forget the service later, will he? Well, no one saw me do that. So what? God did. I don't know if you grew up watching the annual Charlie Brown specials. You remember that philosopher Snoopy? Um, he said this. He says, yesterday I was a dog. Today I'm a dog. Tomorrow I'll probably still be a dog. Sigh. There's so little hope for advancement. Guess what? We're servants today. We're to be servants tomorrow. And even the reign of Christ in heaven will still be his servants. But there's great hope of reward and advancement. Difference. Last thing we want to look at, this protected steps. Last point. We see Peter's dilemma here. Jesus tells him, hey, Simon, by the way, Satan wants a piece of you. That's always encouraging to hear, right? Satan, does, Satan says he wants to have you. He wants you mano a mano, one-on-one. He wants to sift you as wheat. He's heard your conversation. He thinks you're easy pickings. Y'all's debate about who's the greatest. Satan knows a little bit about pride. He's the father of it. And he knows that with pride comes what? A fall. So he's like, if these guys are walking in the fall uh, in pride, I'm pretty sure I can make them fall hard. The word you, by the way, though, when he says, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you, the word you in the Greek is plural. In New York, you'd say use guys, right? Plural. So Jesus, he's speaking to Peter, who is effectively the spokesperson for the disciples, but he's speaking to them as a group as well, not just to Peter, but to the group. In other words, Satan is saying, I want to sift all of you disciples, Christian, Satan desires to sift all of us in this room. Not personally, he'll use his low-level demons on some of us, but he does desire to sift us. He tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. He'll go after everybody. Now, he couldn't defeat Jesus, but he likes his chances against our weak flesh. That makes sense? Satan's been around a long time. He's been observing human beings for a long time, and he, one thing he knows is they haven't changed. So he likes his chances against our weak flesh. You know what he doesn't like his chances in? People that are prayer warriors in the Holy Spirit. He doesn't like his chances there. But if you're not praying in the Spirit, as the Scriptures say to do, if you're not in the Word of God, if you do not read the Bible and pray, he thinks he can take you very easily. Or he may already have you. And you're just a drone. Right? Understand that if you've chosen to follow Christ, the enemy will look to expose you where you're most vulnerable. Satan knows your vulnerabilities. The enemy knows. The Greek uh, word for sift here, the Greek word for sift is uh, sinizo. Siniadzo, sorry. Siniadzo. 
This Greek word syniazo, it means to shake and a sieve. So in other words, Satan wants to shake you and see what you're made of. That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Satan wants to shake you and see what you've got. What's going to come out? You know, Jesus has conversations with, the Bible talks about Satan actually goes up to the throne of God and has conversations. Remember about Job? He's like, hey, your servant Job, if I shake him really hard, he will curse you. God says, go ahead. Give it a try. I've got Job's back. He wants to see in you and me, what will it take to make us cave? What will it take to make us abandon Christ in our life, to silence our witness? But Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Isn't it great to know that Jesus has our back? That's why I've called this last point protected steps. If you're really saved, he really will protect you. He really will not let you come out of his hands. But he's going to let us skin our knees a few times, isn't he? In Psalm 34, 17, it says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Peter was going to need to cry out because he was going to do exactly what Jesus said. He's going to deny Jesus three times. Notice, though, that Satan needed permission to do this. Did you know that God is the one that gives the enemy permission to attack you in your vulnerable areas? Now, we're told to strengthen the weak areas in the Lord, but he still... He still has to get permission from the Lord. Peter also understand, you know, people give Peter such a hard time. Uh, but Peter wanted to do big things for God. I love when I meet people who want to do big things for God. Just don't do it in your flesh. If you want to set big goals, we love having you. Just don't do them in your flesh. Pray about them. Read the scriptures over them. Have God give you things. And, and talk about them humbly, right? And talk about them as if they're from the Lord, not from us. He was wanting to do big things for God, but he was going to have to learn that it had to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. They had to be done under the control of the Holy Spirit. It couldn't be Peter couldn't rely on, well, I know a lot, so therefore I can do a lot. What we know isn't of any value to God. It's who we know that flowing through us makes God able to do things through us. That makes sense? Well, Peter said, i got three years of knowledge. I should be able to go and conquer the world. Jesus said, you still don't get it unless the Holy Spirit is upon you, which would come in Acts chapter 2. Then, just knowing a bunch of stuff, I went to seminary, I, I studied online, or I watched 10 YouTube videos about this. I know everything now. Right? God wants to have humble servants that are filled with the Spirit. He was going to have Peter do great things, but Peter had to fall first. You know, sometimes I look back and God has used failure to change me so much. How about you? Failure is a great teacher. Don't go trying to fail. Don't look for failure. Don't worry. It'll find you anyway. I don't try and fail, but I look back and realize every time I've failed, usually I was not prayed as much as I should have been, did a little bit on my own thinking, did it too soon, didn't pray it through, didn't look at the scriptures long enough about it, and those things can happen. But yet God teaches us through that, say, well, I don't want to do that again. I want to make sure I hear from the Lord that it is coming from the Holy Spirit. But God knows the heart. God knows Peter's heart. 
He knows that even though Peter's going to curse and deny him three times, God knows Peter wanted to be a faithful servant. And God knows when you've failed, you, sometimes you feel so guilty, you feel like, I could never get back in church. Like, God won't even let me worship this Sunday. Yes, he will. He'll restore you. That's what we're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a minute. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about a bunch of failures that God is restoring. Amen? That's really all we are. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Don't try and hold on to this dignity that, oh, I'm not a failure. Yes, we all are. We've failed in our heart. Whatever else can't see, the sparkling outside exterior, God sees beyond that. And he sees, I know your thought life. I know how you really felt about that situation. I know how your motives weren't right. Get it right. I still love you anyway. Isn't that great to know? That God will forgive. Peter says, when you, he says, and when you've returned to me, strengthen the brethren. Peter, God's already told Peter in advance, you're going to fall flat because you were arguing about who is the greatest. You weren't prayed up on this. We're about to go to the garden. I'm going to tell you to pray, and you'll fall asleep. But after all that, I still love you because I know in your heart you love me, and I'm going to fix you anyway. Isn't it great? Because I look at God and I say, God, you, can you really fix me in all these areas? God says, yes, I can. I've done it lots of times. Goes back to Moses and this person, this person, this person, and he'll do it with you too. Amen? He'll protect our steps. We're going to fall, but we're going to make it too. And after we've been renewed from failures and mistakes, he'll be faithful to complete the work in us. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the reminders, Lord, to walk in wisdom. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want to be presumptuous, as we see in both uh, the argument as well as Peter's response. Pride and presumption, Lord, we want to be humble, and we want to, Lord, be those servant-hearted followers of you that you've asked us to be, that you've called us to be, that you've commanded us to be. And Lord, we want to be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit to go forward in faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.